All right. We are in Exodus chapter 23. Please open up your Bibles. If you've got one nearby, grab it. If you don't have one nearby, go find one. Come back here. And then we'll get into this together. We're still in the woods, as it were. In terms of tonight's study, we are still in the woods. The tree that we stopped at the last time is the ninth word of the Decalogue. We're good? All right. The ninth word of the Decalogue, the ninth of the Ten Commands, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. And I'm talking about three Wednesdays ago, four Wednesdays ago, actually, that we were together in the woods and we're back there. But the final tree that we stopped to look more specifically at there with the, with the woods, <laughs> now you're all letting me know. Thank you. We're good. Awesome. Is Exodus 20, verse 16. The ninth word, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So remember, we talked about the Ten Commandments are like the forest that we see from the outside, but then chapters 21, 22, 23, we get into the woods. We see the trees one by one. He begins to pull out the commands and make explanation of them. And that's what we're going to check out now. We're going to finish up chapter 23 tonight prior to Moses ultimately going back up the mountain and having quite an experience we'll talk about on Sunday and then receiving, going further into the cloud of God's glory, he's going to receive the Ten Commandments written in the stone, the tablets of the law, awesome, written by God himself. We'll see that in later study, Lord willing. But for a broader outline tonight, as we finish up here in the woods, we're going to take a final look here at Exodus 23, and we're going to take a look at it over five days. Five days. Now, that's not the length of the teaching, but those are going to be your points tonight. I'm going to give you five days for your points. And the first day is what we'll call Israel's day in court. Israel's day in court. Again, Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And while that is a blanket statement against all lying, all slander, all gossip, it does hone in to what happens in the courtroom. And you may recall from our study several weeks back now that the ninth commandment was the one most violently violated against the Lord himself. Chapter 23, verse 1, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. It is nearly prophetic of that frenzied mob at the trial of Jesus when false witness after false witness was brought forward, liar after liar, and it was all based on the betrayal of one man, Judas Iscariot, and then handed over to another man, the high priest Caiaphas, and then handed to another man, Herod, and then back to Caiaphas. Ultimately, it will be handed to Pontius Pilate, who is an interesting player in the whole passion drama. And in fact, in that trial before Pontius Pilate, Mark chapter 15, verse 12, Pilate said to them all gathered there, what shall I do with him you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. The Bible tells us wishing to satisfy the crowd, the mob. What are we told? You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. Once heard Dennis Prager say years ago, I've never seen anything good come out of a mob. 
and it's true. You can apply that to present day. Mobs are never a good thing. But wishing to satisfy the crowd, we're told Pontius Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now that's Mark's telling of it, and it's a little more involved, a little more complex. More took place, and we'll see that in just a moment. But I remind you what we talked about on Sunday, that he who laid down the law laid down his life on our behalf, having kept the law perfectly. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3, 16, I love it because these two passages, John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16, go so well together. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's a potent and powerful verse. We are called to lay down our lives one for another. That's loving your neighbor, my friends. But in the study, again, verse three continues on, says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. This is still a picture of what took place at the trial of Jesus. But just for our understanding, the law, God in talking about this whole idea that, that you were not to bear false witness against your neighbor. The law was to be fair and impartial, regardless of person or position or social standing. So if a poor man came along, you're not just to feel sorry for him and then flout justice. No, you're just, whether they're poor or rich or middle class, doesn't matter. Justice is justice, the truth is the truth. And so God makes it clear that even to a poor man, you shall not be partial. You look for the truth. Well, guess what? Jesus was a homeless, itinerant rabbi, a poor man. And he was not to be treated, according to law, with partiality, but impartiality. And what's ironic to me is that before the law, that is the law of Rome at the time, Jesus was legally found without bias or partiality, a poor man, innocent of all the charges. Innocent of all charges, John 18, 38. John gives us a more explicit view uh, along with Matthew and Luke, but it tells us that Pilate went out again to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. The Jewish leaders were being partial against Jesus. The, Jew, the, the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, was actually being impartial. Ironic, he was following their law when he said, I, I don't find anything Wrong here, there's no guilt in him. And so Pilate then tries to play a little game. He tries to offer the customary Passover pardon. See, every year they would let off one criminal just to assuage the Jewish people, a little deal they have with Rome. And so he says, hey, hey, we do that. So how about I release, I give you that Passover pardon. Let's release this man. Well, they call crucify him all the more. And he said, well, release this man or Barabbas, Barabbas the hardened criminal. And they said, give us Barabbas. Well, Pilate then thought, well, let's try flogging and humiliating Jesus before them. Perhaps that'll produce some sympathy. Well, a second time, he comes out before them. John 19, verse four, Pilate said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I, for the second time, find no guilt in him. Well, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, 
behold the man. Again, why does he do this? No doubt because he thought this might generate enough compassion that they would leave this innocent man alone. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, crucify, crucify, and of course got the crowd all going with them. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I, and this is now the third time, I find no guilt in him. Isn't that amazing? The poor man Jesus actually got a fair trial on the Roman side of things. Three times pronounced innocent of all charges, but the hardened enemies of their own Christ refused to accept it in violation of this very law that they were so, so proud that they thought they kept. Well, verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You mean I gotta even work with, help my neighbor if his animals are struggling? That's exactly right. He says in verse six, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. So even for your enemy's animal, there was to be compassion. This is a picture, again, of just love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't matter who your neighbor is. Doesn't matter if you get along with your neighbor, you barbecue together, you hang out together, or if your neighbor is a jerk. Your neighbor's your enemy. It doesn't matter. You love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus clarified this. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, see, the hate your enemy part was never was never in the commandments. That came along later. That became a part of tradition before the first century. Jesus says, you've heard that. I say to you, love your enemies. The clarification of the love your neighbor command. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Are, are you doing that? Do you? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is good, evil, righteous, unrighteous are all blessed in this world. They all receive at least the gracious blessings of God on this planet. And Jesus says, you do the same. You give sun and rain. You give love and compassion, grace. You give it to your friend and to your enemy as well. Verse seven, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. And I think again of Jesus who was both the innocent and the righteous. It says in verse eight, you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. Isn't that exactly what Judas did? He took a bribe, 30 pieces of silver. You shall not oppress, verse nine, a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. So again, Judas, he violates, he accepts the bribe of the silver. And Jesus, you could even say Jesus was the stranger. Oh, Jesus came to Israel. He came to the world, the world didn't recognize him, John says. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Though he was a Jew and the perfect Jew at that, even his own would not receive him as such. He became a stranger in his own, in his own country literally a foreigner. He left his home in heaven and he put on flesh. 
And yet he's the one who's put on trial, this unjust, unfair trial where false witness was flying right and left, though he was declared innocent by Pilate. And it's all something, I just, again, I can't imagine God speaking these words knowing that they would be completely trounced and trampled by the leaders of his people against himself. It's a stunning recognition. But hear me on this. I call this Israel's day in court. Israel's day in court, not Jesus' day in court. In fact, this whole section reminds me that it was not Jesus who was the only one on trial that day. You see, Israel was. What was the verdict? Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, when he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The verdict for Israel's day in court. Less than four decades later, the prophetic ruling of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem at the beginning of that final week was fulfilled in the fall and the decimation of Jerusalem exactly as Jesus described it. Not one stone left upon another. It was raised to the ground, the temple up in flames. And in all of this, we see the picture of what would happen to Jesus even here proclaimed in the commands of God if they would have followed the commandments, even if they had not understood Jesus, even if they were angry with Jesus, even if they had issue with Jesus, if they had followed the command of God as detailed in the ninth commandment and expressed further here, it never would have happened. See, that's the problem with the heart of man. In all these things, in terms of how we treat our neighbor, we hear echoes of Jesus across the centuries as he said in Matthew 22, 37, and I repeat this again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. I wanna encourage you before we go any further to bring that into the now. And by the way, when I say I wanna encourage you, I'm encouraging me, all right? We are in this together. We are disciples together. We're followers together and we are all called upon and challenged and convicted of the same word of God here to bring this into the now. Because honestly, the more I look at the season that we're in, I can't think of a better time than this to put love in play to love God more than I've ever loved him before and to love my neighbor as myself, though my neighbor may have a different view of what's going on in our country, though my neighbor may have a different view of our government's response to the pandemic, though my neighbor may completely disagree with me, I've got to love my neighbor. I'm called to love my neighbor. And that's for this season. That's hard sometimes because we like to be in agreement on everything but when we're not, can I still love you? Can you still 
love me. There couldn't be a better time than this. I didn't say an easier time. There could be easier times to play the whole love your neighbor card, but there couldn't be a better time than when it's difficult and challenging. Israel's day in court, and Israel was found wanting, and Jesus gave the verdict, and we've seen the outcome of that back in AD 70. Well, the second day on the agenda for tonight is Israel's day of rest. Israel's day of rest, verse 10, you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. Whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. It's called the sabbatical year. See, it's not just that they had every seventh day off from work. They had every seventh year. Wouldn't that be amazing? What a great idea. We work for six years. We take a year off, a year on holiday. Can you imagine how much more chill we would be in the world if we all had that seventh year off? We just hung out, saw our friends, traveled, relaxed, sought the Lord. Well, in verse 12, six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Remember all of that? The sabbatical year and the, sabbat and, the, and the Shabbat, the Sabbath, Israel's day of rest. God was intentional about calling them to take their rest in him. Now, I'm not going to say a lot more about the sabbatical year tonight. It's discussed in Leviticus 25, and Lord willing, we're going to be there in a few months. We'll get to Leviticus 25 and really sink our teeth into the sabbatical year and what it meant and the ongoing blessing that it could have been for Israel. But the sabbatical year was given by God for several reasons that we see right here in verses 10 and 11, an agricultural reason. Let the land lie fallow. It's good for the land. We see this out in the Skagit Valley every year. Uh, fields that are filled with pumpkins in the fall one year, the next year it'll be in a different field and that, and that field will lie fallow. Fields that have tulips in the spring one year, the next year you go back to the same field, no tulips. The tulips are over there because this land is lying fallow. See, our farmers have figured out God was right, that the land needs to rest as well. So every seventh year, God said, just let the, the land chill. Let it grow whatever is going to grow. An agricultural reason, a personal reason, it was just good for the sower and the harvester. It's personal for God's people. Take the year off. Rest, relax. It's good for you to have downtime like this. It was also a charitable reason, the sabbatical year was, because the poor could come and glean from the fields all that they wanted. They continued to be provided for. Now we'll find later in Torah that that was the deal for the poor. If they didn't have anything, if they didn't have any fields, if they were poor and destitute, they could go out into the fields after the harvest and glean anything that was left. And they were allowed to do that and have it because God cares for the poor among his people. Agricultural, personal, charitable, it was also provisional. It was even good for the animals. They could come along in the seventh year and there was food on the ground that grew naturally in the fields and they could eat and, and, and be provided for and cared for, God caring even for the animals of Israel, but bigger than all of these things, it's a, a spiritual reason because it was every seventh year that the people were to be reminded of Yahweh Yireh 
or as we say, Jehovah Jireh. That is God, our provider. Every seventh year, they would pause and see, wow, look at how he provides for us. You see, as part of the sabbatical year, in the sixth year, God said, I'm gonna make sure that the land provides twice as much so that you can store up and, and going into the seventh year. Imagine that. I, I think of, of, our, of our church staff, if I said, okay, here's the deal, everyone, from now on. You're gonna work for six years. In the sixth year, you're all gonna get double salary. So not only, yeah, Eve and Jake are both going, yeah, yeah. No, we're not gonna do that. We're not doing that. Just I. You know, I'm, I'm just, it's, it's like a carrot. I'm hanging out in front of them. But think about that. Your boss says, hey, for six years you're going to work, and the sixth year you get double salary so that when you take the seventh year off, your pay's already there. You're already given your pay. So it's not like skipping a beat. You just get to chill for it. And God said, that's what I want. In the sixth year, double the produce of the, of the vine and of the olive grove. Double the produce of the field. I got you covered so that you can rest in the seventh what a good God. And again, you might recall these words in verse 12, going back to Shabbat itself, the weekly observance, the seventh day, the words cease and rest and refresh. Cease in the verse is tisbolt, and it means to rest from all labor. This week we had Labor Day. Every week, God said, take Labor Day. Every week, you get a Labor Day. You get to relax and be off. And then the word rest, yanuah. We talked about these words. It means settle down. It's the word that we would use for an animal. In fact, it says, so that your donkey may rest, and the word means settle down. Whoa there, donkey, chill out. And your donkey and your, your cows and your animals, they, they can have their rest as well. The third word, refresh, yinapesh, which means breathe. And just breathe. Stop and breathe. Hebrews chapter four, verse 10 says, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And again, this points us right to Jesus who said, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. You'll find rest. Jesus is our Shabbat. He's Lord of Shabbat. He is our Sabbath. One more thing about the sabbatical year before we go on. You Bible students know this. For 490 years, the Jews ignored the sabbatical year. You know what that means? They took the money and ran. It means every sixth year, God, who's faithful, did what he said he would do. How do you know that, Rick? Well, because I know the Lord is faithful. He said, every sixth year, I'm gonna give you double the yield. And so in the sixth year, he'd give double the yield. But in the seventh year, the farmers were right back at it. Oh, having stored up and selling off. And oh, we made a, a, we'd made a ton. We made double this year. But the seventh year, they were right back out in the fields again. And for 490 years, Israel did not enjoy or take or observe the sabbatical year even one time. At the end of 490 years, that's 70 sabbatical years they skipped. Guess how many years they went into Babylonian captivity? 70 years. And the Lord would speak through Jeremiah, I am gonna send you into Babylonian captivity for 70 years so my land can have its rest, just as I commanded you. Wow. We ever like that? Always greedy, never trusting in God's provision always wanting more, piling up more, desiring more, while Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness 
and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. Brothers and sisters, we have to decide if we're gonna take God at his word. And, and it's one of the most profound verses in my life, one of the biggest challenges to me. I've told you before, finances were a major stronghold in my life. Not because I was well off or because I was poor, but because I was right up the middle trying to be more well off than I was. And I remember coming to that verse, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. And God challenged me on that saying, are you going to believe me in this? Are you gonna trust me or not? It was a critical moment in my life in comprehending the idea of tithes and offerings and, and giving to the Lord and trusting the Lord with what he had provided me. And I'm asking you tonight the same question that, that I was asked by the Lord. Are you going to take him at his word? Because listen, to Shabbat in the Lord is to trust in the Lord. To rest in Jesus is to trust him, to settle down, to breathe is to say, yes, Lord, your kingdom come and I trust you for your kingdom. I'm gonna seek your kingdom. I'm gonna seek your righteousness. I will trust you that all these things will be taken care of. And I will not be one who strives. Well, verse 13 he says, now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Baal would then be he who must not be named. <laughs> Don't even mention the name. But it's not about fear. Oh, don't mention the name. Baal, oh, don't say that. You know, it's like in The Lion King. Mufasa, Ooh, don't say that. Don't say the name. Don't even mention it. Why? Why not, Lord? Man, don't give them the time of day. Don't mention them because they're irrelevant. Don't name the false gods so as to lend credibility to futility and legitimacy to vacancy. There's nothing there. Don't even speak their name because their name is irrelevant. But why does he say, be on your guard? Note that right in the middle of verse 13. Be on your guard. Guard, And I'll tell you why. Because in all these things, there's an enemy. We saw the prince of the power of the air at work tonight trying to stop this broadcast <laughs> from happening. Trying to mess with the airwaves. There is an enemy. There is a liar and a deceiver. And you know what he'll tell you? Rest is laziness. Yeah. Taking a day off. Are you like me? Get a couple hours into a day off and you start thinking about what you need to get done. Next thing you know, you're in the midst of doing what needs to get done because I only have so many hours in the day and I know that today's supposed to be Shabbat. I know today I'm supposed to be taking a day of rest, but I just don't have time, Lord. And gently, if we listen, he's saying, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. I got this. If you will trust me, if you will rest in me, the deceiver says, no, you gotta work for it, man. You gotta stay on it. You can't let down for a moment. May I just say to you that resting in God isn't laziness and resting in the Lord isn't vulnerability, that Sabbath devotion in Jesus Christ actually sharpens our spiritual acuity. What do you mean? I mean, 
Resting in Jesus and taking actual time to rest in Jesus, not while I'm on the run, but pausing in him as you're doing tonight, my friends, it strengthens faith. And it, it secures our hope. Man, that was happening to me just while we were singing. I was looking up. I could see in the windows behind me, I could see the smoke of the wildfires from Southern Oregon and Northern California. And praying for the people who are fleeing their homes and for the, the damage and disruption that's going on there. And all the tragedy, you start to think about those things in our world and how it just seems like things are coming unglued all around us. And then we begin to worship and man, hope just rises. It's a good thing. It's resting in the Lord. And we know that it sustains. No, it increases our love. The more you rest in him, the more you are enabled to love your neighbor as yourself. Man, resting in God keeps you on point and on guard and even in today's vernacular, on fleek. So you need to rest in the Lord. It's a good thing and it is not laziness. Be on your guard and be at rest. Verse 14. Verse 14, we're gonna go on to the next day here. So we've had Israel's day of court and Israel's day of rest. Well, these are now Israel's days of celebration. Watch this, verse 14, three times a year. You shall celebrate a feast to me. All right, Lord. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Ha kamatzot. For seven days you're to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest of first fruits of your labor. Oh, first fruits, that's Rashid. I remember that one. No, 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 it's not Rashid. It's not the feast of first fruits, as we'll see later on, that followed right along with Hag Hamatzot, the feast of unleavened bread. It's a different feast. It's the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. And we will find out later in Torah that the feast he's talking about there is Shavuot. And then he says, also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year, he says, all your males shall appear before the Lord God, or I like this, the sovereign Yahweh. The sovereign Yahweh. Three times a year. So there are truly seven feasts of Israel. There are four in the fall, four in the spring, and three in the fall season. But these three spread out over the year are what we call the pilgrimage feasts because these three of the seven are the three feasts where God says, I want you to come up to Jerusalem. I want you to come before me. Three times a year, not once a year, not annually, not biannually. Three times every year, every male of the Jewish people, every male Israelite was to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And it was for, again, Hag Hamatzot, and then it was for uh, Shavuot, and then it was for Feast of Ingathering, Sukkot. Two of those feasts were in the spring. One came in the fall. Hag Hamatzot is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the nice thing about that is it's sandwiched right between Passover then Feast of Unleavened Bread, then Feast of First Fruits that happened on, right during Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast of unleavened bread, which doesn't really sound like a feast to me, but it was significant. Passover, Hakamat Sot, and then First Fruits, 
Those three feasts all happened together. So the Lord knew if I have them come for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're going to be there for the other two. So they'll be present for all three. And then the second feast, he says, I want you to come back for this one. Just 50 days later, they go home. A month and a half later, they turn around. Got to go right back up to Jerusalem. Why? For Shavuot, which was in the late spring, the harvest of the late spring. So Hagamatzot, and then Shavuot, and then one final feast. He said, I want you to come up for, and interestingly, it's not Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, not Yom Teruah or what the Jews remember today, Rosh Hashanah, the, you know, it's not a feast for the new year. No, the third feast, the third pilgrimage feast is Sukkot. Sukkot, Sukkot, which means tabernacle or booths. It's the feast of booths. But listen, get this. It's so amazing to me how God works. Here he describes three feasts, feast of unleavened bread, the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, which is actually Shavuot. And then, by the way, did I mention this? Shavuot is Pentecost. And then the third one, Sukkot. But he doesn't call it Sukkot here. Sukkot, the feast of booths. The feast of booths that, that recognizes and, and remembers the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel because it's all about everybody pitches a tent in the backyard and they, they sleep in the booth and they have their meals in the booth and they enjoy their little sukkahs as they're called. But he doesn't call it that here. He calls it here the feast of the ingathering. And he, he appoints this feast before the journey even really has begun. Think about that. They're three months out from Egypt. Left Egypt three months later, they arrive at the Mount of God. They're at the Mount of God right there, right now, where they'll be for two years. And then they're going to head out for another 38 years. They're going to wander in the wilderness. And God calls that Sukkot. But before he calls it Sukkot, he calls it here in the first mention of this feast in the scripture, the feast of ingathering. Because more than being about putting up little sukkahs and and remembering the wilderness wandering. More than that, this is the feast of ingathering. It speaks of the ingathering of the final harvest. And of the seven feasts of Israel, this is the last one. So number three of the pilgrimage feast is number seven of all the feasts of Israel, and it prophetically speaks of the coming kingdom, my friends, the harvest of the ingathering. That's amazing to me. God says, keep the feast of the ingathering. Later, he'll change it to Sukkot for the time being, but ultimately, there's gonna be an amazing, a remarkable ingathering for the kingdom of all my people, the Lord says. What a day of celebration that'll be. Isaiah 66, 18, he says, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Zechariah 14, 16, which illuminates Sukkot, the feast of ingathering as the primary feast we're going to keep during the millennial kingdom. We're going to keep several of the others as well. But that's like the big one, Zechariah 14, 16. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, that is Jesus, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of Sukkot, tabernacles, or as God calls it here, feast of the ingathering. I'm going to gather my people. And then I'm going to gather all the nations annually. They're going to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate together. Where is Jesus in these three national feasts? And I put it to you, 
that he's in all three. In fact, we don't have time for it tonight, but Jesus fulfilled all four spring feasts, literally and perfectly, the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, which was Resurrection Sunday, and the feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, as he poured out his spirit on the church. All four of those feasts have specific and, and obvious fulfillment by Jesus. And that being the case, my friends, the fall feasts are coming. They're coming. And I believe we will see as we look back one day at those, we will recognize that all three of those were fulfilled literally by Jesus as well. But look again at verse 15. I just gotta point this out. Verse 15 at the end of the verse says, after the command to come up for Feast of Unleavened Bread, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. I like that. When God has a party, he says, bring something. When God has a celebration, our question to him is, what can I bring? I love this so much. It's not about showing up to feed. It's showing up to, it's showing up to feed others. It's not just about coming to receive, it's coming to give, to share. When you go up to a feast of the Lord, bring your best blessings to share with other people. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Man, if I have it, God gave it to me. Therefore, give it away. Instruct them, Paul says, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The good stuff of life is everything we give away. We're not called to be a people who save and stockpile and store. We are to share. You see, that, that's God's kind of party. Israel's days of celebration were about Sharing this together. Bring what you've got. Don't come empty-handed. And verse 18, he says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. In other words, keep it pure. Keep it in the moment, right then and there. Don't put off the party. Party now. Come and celebrate now. You bring the feast of the sacrifice, you give the sacrifice and you sit down right then and you eat it and you enjoy in the presence of the Lord. And he says, verse 19, you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. The first fruits, not the leftovers. Not if I've got enough at the end of paying my bills. Do you get it? First fruits, the best that you have, the first you offer that to God first and then watch him bless you. It really is how that works. It's remarkable. That's not prosperity gospel. That's just trusting God. It's seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Bring him your first. Bring him your best. And then verse 19, he says at the end of it, you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. I, I'm sorry, what? Can you, can you repeat that, Lord? Because that was so weird and out of context. I have no idea what you're talking about and why that is right here. This, this weird little add-on 
has become the pillar of Jewish kosher, kosher law. It's remarkable to me. I, I laugh a little. I mean no disrespect to my Jewish friends who keep this kosher law. Man, you can't have a burger with a milkshake. It would ruin my in and out experience every time we go down to Cali. No burger and milkshake together. No meat and dairy. Not only can you not have meat and dairy in the same meal, I've seen signs in Jerusalem that say you can't have meat and dairy in the same digestive cycle. So if you had a big glass of milk at lunch and an hour later someone offers you a burger, you got to think, oh, I can't do that. No mixing the meat and the milk. Can't put them together. The meat might boil in the milk in your belly and violate Torah law. Do you see the, the stretch for that? That we go from you shall not or you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother to I can't have a cheeseburger because the cheese has dairy? It's, it's what the law does. It's what legalism does. It takes something simple and obvious of God, which I'll explain in a second, and then it turns it into this requirement that my wife, when we're in Israel, has to steal butter in the morning so she can put it on her rolls at night. I'm kidding. She doesn't steal it, but she does slide it into her purse. Sorry, Cheryl, you do. Everyone sees you. It's the butter in the morning because there's no meat at breakfast. You don't have bacon or ham. Well, of course you don't because, you know, unclean. You don't have meat with breakfast, so the dairy's out all over the place. Cheeses and, and butters, and it's great. Milk. But in the evening, you cannot find butter on the table. The desserts, and they're great desserts, but they are dairy-free every night in Israel because you can't mix the meat and the dairy together. Wow. Why does Yahweh start out, think about this with me, the festival list saying, do not mention the names of other gods in verse 13. And now end this festival list with a meat and dairy mashup prohibition. Why? Very clearly, listen, to distinguish Israel from the annual pagan celebrations. See, the pagans had theirs, their seasonal parties, their seasonal celebrations, their seasonal offerings to their gods, their false gods that were not to be named. They had their festivals in the spring. They had their festivals in the fall. God says, be on your guard. God says, don't name the pagan gods. I'm giving you festivals that are righteous and fresh and good and true don't mix together with Canaanite festivals and by the way the Canaanites had an annual fertility ritual in which they boiled alive a young goat in its mother's milk for fertility that you would bring a young goat and you bring the mother's milk and you'd set it all up and you'd heat that milk up and you'd drop that young goat inside of it and that poor thing would seethe and burn and die. Ah, we've appeased the gods, and now the wife will be, fruit, will be fruitful. God said, don't do that. Don't be like them. I've got celebrations for you. God loves a good feast and loves for his people to rejoice in him and, and together in his presence. He's all about that. But God's celebrations were to be wholly different and wholly different. God's celebrations. 
We're not to blend or get mixed up with pagan rituals and seasonal celebrations. And we gotta, we gotta navigate that, my friends. Santa Claus in a manger scene? Halloween? All Hallows Eve? Of course, All Hallows Eve isn't, isn't a biblical festival. Or, but, but how we take the beautiful things of God and, and mesh them and mix them with the things that are pagan specifically. There's a lot of that in the church. And it takes wisdom to see through all these things and to understand. I'm not anti-Christmas, I'm not anti-Easter. And I've had, we've had conversations about that. You can dial back on the website and find teachings, old teachings about that, where we, we talk specifically. Would Jesus celebrate Christmas? Well, he celebrated Hanukkah, and that's not a biblical commanded holiday. But all that aside, the mixing. It's not the mixing of meat and dairy that God has a problem with. It's the mixing of paganism with holiness. So he, he says, when you start to celebrate these feasts, understand Israel's day of rest, Israel's days of celebration, you know what they're all about? Framing a lifestyle of devotion to Yahweh. That's the point. The idea behind, there's substance there. I love that. Substance behind the celebration. It's not some empty, vapid, fat guy in a red suit flying in on a sleigh drawn by a reindeer. That's just bizarre. Sorry, kids. No, it's something real and meaningful. It's why our Christmas Eve service is one of my favorite services of the whole year because we recognize the coming of Messiah into the world. Not a mashup of these other things. It's about a lifestyle. It's about each week on the seventh day I stop and I remember the Lord and I rest in the Lord and every seventh year take the sabbatical year, enjoy that and throughout the year three times go up to Jerusalem. Why? So that in the in-between as I come back home I'm talking about that wonderful mountaintop experience, the mountaintop being Mount Moriah. And I come home and I, and I live off that for a while. And, and Sabbath is, is right away. Oh man, you remember when we were with the Lord up in the, in the temple? It was amazing with the people. And then, and then we go back up a few months later. And we're back down, but we have Sabbath every week. And then we go back up again three times a year, minimum. Because God wanted the life of his people to be infused with his presence so that they would draw near. You know, it, it, it's like going to church. Really, truly, church attendance, even tuning in tonight, you know, that doesn't save you. Well, if it doesn't save me, why do I do it? Because it does develop and maintain faith and hope and love among us. These remembrances, these days of rest and celebration, that's what they're about, cultivating and nurturing trust in the nearness and the presence of God. Psalm 73 Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, David writes, the nearness of God is my good. I think it's David. Could be Asaph. One of the two, but they wrote it. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. I just want to be near. I want to be close to him. That's where the good stuff is. In his presence and reminded of him. And that being the case, don't you ever wonder why, if the nearness of God is my good, why don't more people draw near? Why don't more take refuge in him when he offers that so freely to us? And I'll tell you why. It's because the nearness of God 
requires a paradigm shift to a different kind of life, a new, a, a spiritual life. Listen to this. If you want to turn there, turn over to Isaiah chapter 58, but, but I want you to understand this contrast of the way sometimes we try to come to God versus the way he wants us to come. And we think we're being near to him because we're doing the right things. And, and he's like, but, well, let me just show you. Isaiah chapter 58, verse one. Cry loudly and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, God tells Isaiah, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Wow, that all sounds great, yeah? But then verse three, they say, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? The Lord says, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. You drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. <laughs> you do not fast like you do today to make your voice known on high. Is it a fast like this, which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? He says, no, no, is this not the fast? which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into the house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, and then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. When is that? When we love our neighbor as ourself. That's where it's all playing out. I love God. Do you love your neighbor? Because God says, that's the fast that I choose. That's what I'm looking for. You say you draw near to me. You can't draw near to me unless you are drawing near to your fellow man, unless you're loving your neighbor as yourself. But, but if we do that, if we love one another and if we throw out all wickedness and we serve and care for one another and especially the most needy among us, well, then the, the Lord will continually guide you, verse 11, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Remember what Jesus says, you will have within you a well of water springing up to eternal life. My spirit. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins, he says, prophetically, you will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. I might as well read the last two verses of Isaiah 58. If because of the, of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call Shabbat a delight a holy day of the Lord, honorable. 
And if you honor it, desisting from your ways and seeking from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Yaakov, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the deal. From Shabbat to celebration, the focus is a spiritual lifestyle, walking in and with the Lord. It's loving God, which has a deep effect as we then in turn love our neighbor as ourselves which by the way also then impacts my love of God. And around we go in the system of love that he established. What I'm saying here, what the word is telling us is the authentic nearness of God is found in love. And so Paul would later write in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. On days of celebration, each day of the week, three times a year, however often, he set all these things up so that the people would walk near to him. Let it be a lifestyle. Now, continuing on, understand that long before we were given this opportunity. See, he's done a beautiful thing. He called the people to a lifestyle and laid out the law showing them if they'll do this, it'll help them get there to that lifestyle. But, but before he, he came in and gave us the opportunity to now live that lifestyle spiritually because his spirit is in us, long before he called us to walk with his spirit, his spirit walked before Israel. Watch this, verse 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice and do not be rebellious toward him for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, wait a minute, what? His voice is what I say, same thing. Note that then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you in to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Who is this angel? Do I need even, even to ask the question? The Malach in Hebrew. This is unquestionably a pre-incarnate Christophany, that is Jesus before Christ. <laughs> Think about that. Jesus before Christ. Yeshua before Christos, before Mashiach, before Messiah. Jesus as God before his own people, before he became the Christ our Savior. He shows up. This is him right here. Well, that sounds cool, but how, how do you know this? Look at the clues. God says, I'm going to send my angel, my malach. That word malach in the Hebrew is never applied to angels. It means messenger. There's another Hebrew word for angels when angels show up and do things. But, but messenger, my messenger before you. And here the word messenger speaks of a Christophonic messenger. That is an pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. His angel, my malach, I'm going to send. Why don't you call him Jesus? Because it's not time for that yet. That's coming later. I'm just going to send him as my messenger. Notice his authority here, as we read, is to be obeyed and to pardon or not to pardon sin. No one has that right but God. Only God and this, apparently, this malach. 
This is no ordinary angel because no ordinary angel has that kind of authority. Notice his appellation. God says in verse 21, my name is in him. My name is in him. It's another way to say he is me. Notice this accord that obey his voice, his voice, and do all that I say. There's a one and the sameness here between this messenger and God himself, his angel, his authority, his appellation, his accord, and finally, his agreement. Watch this, verse 24. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. He and I, who's the I here? It's Jesus. Father and Son working in tandem, working together. It says, there shall be no one, verse 26, miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I, he says in verse 27, will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you came or whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I can tell you right now, I don't have any Hivites, Canaanites, or Hittites on my property, but I do have hornets. Just saying. Verse 29, well, hold on a second. Is this God or is this his angel? And the answer in both is yes. Yes, this is God. Yes, this is the the Malach. My friends, think about this. Jesus went to the the Solomon's portico to what's called the pools of Bethesda. The five porticos. Five is the number of grace in the Bible. And there are five porticos over these pools, two, two massive pools just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And Jesus is there one day And he's walking along and there are all kinds of people who are sick and they're laying around these pools and he goes to one man, one man, a lame man. He says, you want to get better? Man had been lame for 38 years, same length of time the children walked in the wilderness. He'd been lame 38 years, Jesus goes up, he heals this man. The man is off walking after that, carrying his pallet because Jesus said, hey, take your pallet and head on home. So he's heading home and the the Jews freak out. Oh, hey, what is Sabbath? You know, it's another Sabbath healing. I think we mentioned this recently. And what Jesus said, see, they came after him. They're persecuting him because he healed the man on, the, on Shabbat, because he brought rest to the man and healing and comfort. And his response as they come after him and they're persecuting him is John 5, 17. Listen, he says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Notice that synergy. My father's working, and I myself am working. But then John wisely tells us what's going on. John 5, 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking Shabbat, but was also calling God his father, making himself equal with God. They got it. They recognized that Jesus was coming along saying, I am God. My father's working, I'm working. That's, you know, my father's working, you're seeing it right now. Here I am. Here's my father doing the work because I am, I and the father, Jesus would later say, are one. Paul later said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, 
that all Israel drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul says Christ was in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And right here, the Lord declares, I will be with you. I will go before you. Well, my angel, but I, same thing. How can the angel and God be one when the angel is Jesus? And we see him declared right here. But hang with me. Notice the pace of the Lord in verse 29. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I'm not gonna drive them out right away. Verse 30, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I'm not just gonna empty out the land, God says. See, I could empty out the land and then by the time you got there, it'd be filled with wild beasts and you got the weeds and thorns and thistles everywhere and the whole thing would be a complete disaster. I'm not just gonna do that. And in fact, we'll find out in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, when you came into the land, or when you come into the land, it's not something that you cultivated. It was pre-cultivated for you. It was prepared. The vineyards were already there. The fruit trees and the olive groves already there. Even a lot of the animals already there. You come into a settled land and take it. And that was God's plan here. I'm not going to send you into the wild, wild west. I'm going to bring you into a land that is cultivated. But note this. This is how Jesus works. This is how... The spiritual lifestyle works. What do you mean? Little by little, you will become fruitful. Little by little, I'm going to drive out the enemy. Little by little, I'm going to give you what you need. This is so huge to me. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes Back to that man, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That's the way it's going to be with this evil generation. What, what do you mean? He's describing a spiritual truth that if a demon is cast out of someone, there's a void, there's an emptiness, there's a clean, you can clean house. It's great. Then what do you do? You've got to fill the space. Clean it out. Get rid of the sin. Say no to the rebellion. Clean it out, but you've got to fill the space because if you don't fill the space, demon's coming right back with his bros and will mess you up worse than the first time. You get rid of all your sin and all your wrongdoing and man, you just I'm cleaned up, I'm good, this is great and you fall flat on your face worse than before because you never filled the space. You don't just empty out the land. You don't empty out the heart. It, listen, it needs to be filled and replenished, nurtured and resettled. The Lord, when you give your heart to him, when you become a follower of Jesus, he will give you his spirit immediately. We have that promise. Acts 2.38, repent each one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's cleaning house and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's filling the house. So his spirit comes to reside. His spirit is with you. If you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, guess what? You have his spirit. 
His spirit is within. His spirit resides with you. However, little by little, you will experience as you walk in him the outpouring of his spirit. Sometimes it's called the baptism of his spirit. Less taught on that last week. Sometimes referred to as the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And listen to me, I think biblically I can make a case that it comes in portions. I've been asked a lot about the baptism of the Holy Spirit over the last several years. People say, is that like a one-time event supposed to happen? And some reject it outright and others say, yeah, no, I had the one time and that's what really made me a Christian. What makes me a Christian is the grace of God. Faith in his grace, period, is what saves me, is what calls me his child, is what fills me with his spirit. But the idea of Jesus coined the phrase, John the Baptist coined the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is God measuring out. It's, it's power, it's anointing, it's gifting for ministry. And he will do that in addition to you being filled with his spirit. And note this, the spirit gives 1 Corinthians 11 as he wills just as he wills, in his time, in his way, what you need, what he thinks, what he knows and has determined that you need. Spirit will do that. But, but note this, John 3.34, John the Baptist speaking said, for he whom God sent speaks the words of God, talking about Jesus, for he, Jesus, gives the Spirit without measure. Well, Rick, you just said, wait, he measures the Spirit out. Understand that when John the Baptist said he gives his spirit without measure, literally he said, he gives the spirit without naught. Huh? He gives the spirit without naught. That is, he doesn't give you some of his spirit, he gives you all of his spirit. Don Coughlin used to say often, he used to say, you know what? People ask for more of the Holy Spirit. I don't think God can give us more of himself. He's already given us his spirit. We have his spirit. Not a piece of his spirit. We have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that's absolutely true. But you know what he does give in portion? The power. The anointing, if you will. He gives the gifts and the callings. He gives in portions. He doesn't drown us all at once. Fills us with a spirit and then just pours out while we're going, oh, I can't handle this. It's too much, too much power. It's all at once. Ah. <laughs> he gives him portions as we can receive it, as we can walk in it. In other words, he gives you some of his, he, he gives you his spirit and you bear fruit. And then he gives you more of the outpouring of his spirit and you bear more fruit. And he gives you more a fresh anointing and you bear more fruit. And he gives you more spiritual gifting and you bear more fruit. He continues to give, we continue to bear and we grow and we have a word for that and it is very simply maturity. It's how you mature in Christ. You're growing in his word and you're growing in your understanding of Jesus and you're walking with him and his spirit is in you and with you and he gives you a little more. And he gives you a little more. I love Jesus describes it this way. Mark chapter four, verse 26. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Then he goes to bed at night. He gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. That's how the spirit works. He works in us and, and all of a sudden I've grown and I didn't even know what happened. I'm fruitful and I don't even know why. 
Jesus said the soil produces crops by itself. He always describes the soil of the heart. And he fills you and he nurtures you and he cultivates you and you rest in him and suddenly fruit. And he says, listen to this, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come and it's time to go. Later, Jesus said in the same parable, it says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, listen, so far as they were able to hear it. Gave them what they needed, what they could hear, but he didn't give them everything because if he gave them everything, they couldn't have received it. They wouldn't have been ready for it. You don't give calculus to a fourth grader. That's too much. You just start with the basics and ultimately grow to that point. I've never had calculus. I don't want to have calculus. It just freaks me out. But for those who have, you, know, you grew to it. You matured. I clearly didn't in the mathematics field. <laughs> but Jesus also said, John 16, 12, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Later. Later when, Lord? When you've matured, when you're able to take in more of what I have to pour out, my spirit's with you. Completely, totally, absolutely. But I will give you more power as needed. And I will sanctify you and mature you in your walk. And I am so thankful that's how God does it. Otherwise, we'd be a bunch of fruits and nuts. <laughs> we'd be whacked. We'd be Corinth. Too much all at once. But maturity, listen to me, maturity. I know I keep saying listen to me. I just don't want to lose you on this. I think this is why, right here, what we're talking about is why the devil tried so hard to shut down this broadcast tonight. So please hear me. Maturity requires bumps and bruises and challenges and in fact, sometimes downright difficulties. Hey, in these last days, difficult times will come. Times that are hard to do, hard to take, hard to approach, hard to bear. And that's when God's working. And now, in so many of our lives, God is doing marvelous things and working. Will you receive that? Will you accept that he's working? I'm gonna be bearing more fruit next season than I ever imagined. Next season, Rick, I hope we're out of here by then. I do too. I'm hoping next season is in the kingdom and I'm bearing fruit there. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm being prepared for, what we all are. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Man, when my parents disciplined me, I hated it in the moment. But now as an adult, I look back, I'm so thankful for the direction and the guidance and the steering of my life. And God's doing that. And sometimes I hear people say, I can't stand what God's doing right now in my life. And I think, how blessed are you that he's working in you? What a joy it is that you're having difficulties. That means he is, he's maturing you and he's growing you up and he's getting rid of the enemy, but little by little. He's clearing out the heart, little by little. And he's pouring out the gifts and the callings and the anointings of his spirit, little by little. The Lord doesn't vacate the lot at the outset because he knows the land must be taken the heart must be taken little by little and that is the spiritual life 
as he's maturing us to walk in him. But guess what? (laughs) Even though it's little by little that they would take the land, God had already mapped out the full extent of Israel's ultimate boundaries. Verse 31, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Med Sea, and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out from before you. And get this, verse 31 describes you're gonna come into the promised land, I'm gonna clear out the enemies and it's gonna be your land, but it's bigger than that because what he describes here, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, all the way out to the Euphrates, Israel never had land that far out. They were never that expansive. This describes what God described to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18, when he says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. He mapped it out for Abraham. He maps it out here again for Moses and the children of Israel. I'm gonna give you, and we've talked about this, 300,000 square miles of land. That's your promise. That's your promised land. Solomon got Israel to the point of 30,000 square miles at its greatest, 10% of God's promise, even as seen here in verse 31, the region from the Red Sea to the Med Sea with the Dead Sea and the Nile and the Euphrates and everything that's all in between that. And that day, and we're here to the fourth day in our list, that day has yet to happen. The fourth day in our outline, not a day in court. That happened as Jesus was rendered a guilt offering for all who would trust in him. That was the day in court. Not simply a day of rest or a day of celebration, although rest and celebration are gonna come with this fourth day. No, we're talking about Israel's day of promise. Note that Israel's day of promise, the full and completed promise of the promised land, north, south, east and west. And Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. That's the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ. Who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people. First time was when he recovered them from Babylon. There has never been a second time but it will happen on that day, that day of Israel's promise. We're almost done, but one more thing here that must take place before that day. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. That is, you shall not cut covenant, literally. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Before that day, the enemy must be driven out, must be completely driven out. He cannot be placated, he cannot be appeased, and he cannot coexist with the people of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 15, and really 14 through 17, but verse 15 says, what harmony has Christ with Belial? There is no harmony between Jesus and Satan. Satan must be driven out. He must be imprisoned. He must be chained up. He will be during the millennial kingdom of Revelation chapter 20. 
He will be driven out completely from the land and then Israel will know the day of their promise, the whole of the land. 2 Corinthians 6.15 also says, hear this, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And that's not to say you don't go to the lost and you don't share the truth of the gospel with the lost. What it means is you don't align yourself with lost people. You don't get into connection, relationship, marriage, business, other things. You don't get into a position where you have to act lost. You remain holy and saved so that you can reach out to those who are lost. But again, God may not clear the land of enemies or difficulties nearly as quickly as I think he should. Man, Lord, I would have done it like last year. Turning 56 this month, I would have driven out the enemy from my life back in my 30s. Well, no, my how about at birth? <laughs> I would have done it a long time ago, Lord, but why? It's been this little by little driving out. Listen, God is driving out little by little the enemies. He's gonna get it done. And Israel will have peace in the land like never experienced before. He's mapped out the coming kingdom, Revelation 20. You can check it out. He has even charted out eternity before us, Revelation 21 and 22. You can check that out. But meanwhile, God is getting us ready, you and me, for another day. Not a day for Israel in court. Not a, Israel's day of rest or, or, or Israel's days of celebration. Not even Israel's day of promise. No, this is a day promised to you and to me. 1 Corinthians chapter, four, chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which, he was, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, listen, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless when, Lord, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Christ Jesus. That's day number five in our list. And that day, my friends, it's, it's coming the day of Christ, it is coming, oh, it's coming on so fast. And Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, he's driving out the enemy. Little by little, he's driving out. And little by little, we're becoming more and more fruitful as he pours out the, the power of his spirit who already dwells within us little by little. And you know what's gonna happen? We're gonna come to the day of Christ. You know what happens on the day of Christ? He says, come up here and we'll go on that glorious day. Speaking of that day, just take a sneak peek at what comes next. Verse one of chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. Interesting. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come then near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And then Moses came. So at that point, Moses heard that. He's with the Lord. So Moses now comes back down, verse three, and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. We might say all the trees of the forest. 
And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now he's going to go back up. We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. But it is just, don't let it be lost on you that after all of this teaching, the very next thing that happens, after the promise to, to push back and bring the kingdom, the very next thing that happens here is Moses is invited to go up. And so are you. And so am I. But my question as we conclude is, will you let Jesus prepare you for his day, the day of Christ? It won't be easy. He never said it would be. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.12, will be persecuted. It's going to be tough, difficult times, hardships. God's going to walk you through those. But here's the good news. These are difficult times. You get what I'm saying? That's good news. But it's hard, Rick. I know. It means he's working, and I think working overtime for his people to be ready for the day of Christ. Lord Jesus, we come before you tonight, and we say, oh, perhaps a little timidly, but we say, okay, do what you need to do. Prepare us for the day of Christ. Father, if it's hard, just let us know that you're with us. If it's difficult, just remind us of your presence. If it's wearisome, Lord, the nearness of God is our good. So would you be even closer to us than you have ever been? May we experience the presence of your spirit living and dwelling in us. And may we receive of your spirit, little by little, what we need to bear fruit for you now, but to be prepared, Lord, to be prepared to be fruitful in the kingdom to come because that's what we're looking for. And that's what I know you've called us to. Make us ready, Lord, in the day of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name. 